Last Sunday, uh, if you remember, I uh, shared on uh, Genesis 32 how uh, Jacob, one of the patriarchs, the Hebrew patriarchs, wrestled all night long with what the writer tells us was a man, an angel, God. But at any way, I, what I suggested uh, in the reflection last week is that Jacob, at this point in his life, was between a rock and a hard place. All the people he had ripped off and conned throughout of his life had sort of uh, come full measure. And he was about to have a reckoning with his brother who had really alienated. And in the middle of his coming to terms with how he had lived his life and how he treated people, I suggested that God shows up and attacks him in this vulnerable place. And that through the wrestling of that night, and I also suggested that uh, Jacob was not only wrestling with God, but with his own interior demons of who he was and how he had behaved. And this week's reflection really is, is uh, in, in a very similar vein. In that story, God uh, comes to Jacob to help him face his interior demons. And in this text that Connie read to us, Jesus comes to Peter and has him face his own interior flaws and imperfections. My sharing this morning, there's a number of words I want to try to highlight for you that are Greek in origin uh, because the text that Connie read was originally written in Greek, uh, attributed to John the Gospel writer. And one of the key words for me in this text from John 21 is this word, it's only used twice in the whole Bible. And it's only used by the gospel writer of John. And it's a word called anthrakia, which literally means the place of hot burning coals. It means a fire, uh, like a little campfire, the place of hot burning coals. And the only other time this word is used is in John chapter 18. And so here's the background and why I think this is significant for us you know, 2,200 years later. So if you remember uh, all of your Bible stories, maybe from Sunday school growing up, or the, the story of Monday Thursday, which was Holy Thursday, Jesus instituted the meal we call communion or Eucharist, and he had the first communion with his friends. And in the middle of all that, they're wondering about, all right, what's going to happen now? This is, things are getting tense. And Peter says, look, Jesus, I don't care what the rest of these guys do. You can count on me. Now, Peter's name, it's a play on words, means rock or rocky. Petros is rock. So Peter is rocky. And he says, you can count on the rock. I'm there for you, Jesus. I got your back. No matter what the rest of these guys do, you can count on me. In a, in a boastful kind of way, because all the other friends are there. And so he's popping off. And Jesus simply looks at him, and this is in a Greek term, but I imagine went something like oive, and said, <laughs> look, before the rooster crows in the morning, three times, you're going to disown me. And so they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and you know the story. The cohort comes. It's an armed band of people to arrest Jesus. And now Peter, 
Peter really is not a coward because he's going to deny Christ three times. But I think it's more he's just confused because if you remember the story, this armed troop uh, comes to arrest Jesus and Peter tries to pick the fight. He grabs a sword and lunges and cuts off a guy named Malchus's ear. And he's, I'm going to die for Jesus. I mean, he's, he's a kamikaze. He's ready to, to die for Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to this incredible act of stupidity or bravery, however you want to look at it, because they're surrounded by armed people. And, and when Jesus gets the ear and glues it back on Malchus's head and heals it and looks at Peter and says, put that thing away, what are you doing? And I, and I think Peter is just confused. I was going to die for you and you're mad at me. And, and so then they take Jesus to the high priest's house for a trial and that's where we run into this word, anthrakia, the very first time in John 18. They're standing around this fire of hot burning coals and a servant uh, lady comes up to Peter and says, you're one of his followers, aren't you? And, and Peter's just confused. I don't know. And then somebody else says, no, 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 your accent gives you away. You're, you're from the Galilee. You're one of his followers. I don't know him. And then a third time somebody comes up at this Amtrakia, the place of hot burning coals, and says, you too are one of his followers. You cut off my cousin Malchus's ear. I saw you do it. And he goes, I don't know him. And the gospel writer Luke tells us after the third denial, Jesus looked right at Peter. And I can imagine they locked eyes and Peter's heart is broken. What have I done? I'm a failure. I, I couldn't keep my promise. I'm broken, I'm boastful, I'm arrogant. What was I doing? And he's just devastated. So now fast forward, after the resurrection, post-resurrection, as Connie read to us. So John 21, Jesus has built a little anthrakia, fire of hot burning coals, and he calls Peter over. And three times now, Jesus is going to ask Peter, do you love me? Sort of a balancing act for the three times Peter said, I don't know you. And now there's another play on words here in the Greek that's very significant. The Greeks, unlike us, had a number of words for the concept of love. We'll say, well, I love the cookies after church and I love my wife. And if I love my wife as much as I love the cookies after church, you can bet my marriage is in big trouble. But we use this word love. Or I love the Seattle Seahawks. Or I love whatever. Love, love, love. We, we use that word for everything. Well, the Greeks had at least four different words for the concept of love. There was the word eros, where we get erotic, which is the love uh, sexually or romantically that you have for a partner. That's one type of love. And then there was storge, which is the love a mother has for her child or a father has for his child. A parental kind of love was called storge. Then there was filio, which is the love, of a brotherly love, comradeship, good friends, dear friends, you know, like the old, you know, uh, Miller or Bud Light commercial, I love you, man. You know, that's phileo. <laughs> where we get uh, the city, Philadelphia, it's li literally the city of brotherly love. That's what it literally means. 
And then there's this other word, agape, which is considered by some theologians to be this perfect, pure kind of love, this selfless, you are just, I, everything I am, I give to you. I agape you. Selfless, sacrificial love. And so with that as a background, when Jesus calls Peter over to the place of hot burning coals, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me sacrificially, selflessly? And Peter looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. See, he's not boasting this time as he did at the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper. He's not saying, I, you can't count on the rest of these guys, but you can count. It's just, Jesus, you know what I'm like. You know what I'm capable of. You saw what I did at the place of hot burning coals. But Jesus, I, I do love you like a brother. Jesus says, take care of my lambs. A second time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me perfectly, selflessly, sacrificially? And Peter looks at him and says, Jesus, Jesus, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then a third time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you really love me like a brother? And this time, Peter's hurt. And he says, Jesus, Jesus, you know what I'm made of. You know what I'm like. Now, doggone it, I do love you like. He says, I do phileo you. I do love you like a brother. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. So what is, what, what's this about? Well, here's what I would suggest to you and to us and why this is significant for us all these years later. Just as God attacked Jacob on that night before he met his brother Esau and helped him face who he was, the con man he had been, which I was all last week. In this story, Jesus comes to Peter and reminds him of his boastfulness and his brokenness and how he couldn't keep his promise. But he's doing that not to shame Peter, not to rub it in, but to rub it out, to erase it, to cauterize the wound. Because imagine if this had not happened, Peter could walk the rest of his life thinking, you can't trust me, you can't count on me, I mean well, but I don't have what it takes. When push comes to shove, I won't be there for you. You can't rely on me. I'm no good. I'm a loser. Because that's how he felt after he betrayed Jesus. But after this incident, he realizes that he's broken, but it, it's a healed brokenness. And now in humility, and now out of a place of gratitude and grace, he is enabled to go care for the lambs and the sheep of Jesus. Not in an arrogant, boastful way, but in a humble way. As one who has received grace, he can now go give grace. Jesus brought him to the place of, not, of hot burning coals, not to shame him, but to liberate him. That's what I think is going on in this story. It's not unlike 
the concept uh, taught by the wonderful Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron of karma. Now, most of us as Westerners, when we hear the word karma, we think, well, I did something bad, now something bad's going to happen to me. It's like, we, we think of it like a chain reaction. I do something good, good comes my way. I do something bad, bad comes. That's what we normally think of karma. That's not what Pema Chodron says karma is at all. Pema Chodron says the idea of karma is that you continually get the teachings that you need to open your heart. And she unpacks it further in her wonderful book, When Things Fall Apart. She writes, the law of karma states, as you sow, so shall you reap. Now this applies directly, she says, to what she was experiencing, even though she felt she was a victim. She says, my karma was, I would continue to get the lessons over and over until I learned from them. I was unconsciously choosing to continue this cycle of suffering by not learning from the lessons that were being presented to me. A visual image for what she's talking about. Think of Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog Day, where he has the same day over and over and over till he gets it right. Then he's free to go on with his life. That's what she's suggesting karma is like, and what I'm suggesting this interlude between Peter and Jesus is like. And what it, uh, the application for us, if you keep running into emotional situations in your life that are causing pain and suffering, maybe they're an offering by Jesus bringing you to the place of hot burning coals so that you can respond differently and learn from that and in a healed place, move forward. But we'll continue to run into the same emotional problems over and over and over and over again until we learn how to respond. Until we receive grace to get through. Until we're liberated from our own idea of I'm the victim, I'm suffering, they done me wrong, this is bad. They did it again, they did it again. I'm a loser, I'm bad, I'm bad. That the same Jesus who brought Peter to the place of hot burning coals wants to liberate us from whatever nonsense you and I might have gotten into or ways we've hurt others or hurt ourselves. What I've learned in over 50 years of being a minister is that sometimes the hardest person we have to forgive is ourself. And as a hospice chaplain, I've been with more than 3,000 people that have died. I can look you in the eye and tell you, the people that have had an ability to make peace with who they are, what they've been, what they've done, who they've been, and been able to forgive themselves, die a lot easier. They don't need nearly the heavy pain medications. And this really has almost nothing to do with religion or faith. Because many of the people that I meet here in Oregon don't go to any kind of a church and aren't necessarily religious. But the ones that have had an ability to make peace with who they are and forgive themselves die easier. And the ones who are still trying to earn God's forgiveness or earn their own forgiveness 
need a lot more analgesics, and those are the big-time painkillers at the end of life because their soul is suffering. That's why this is really, really important. If we're going to live healthy, vibrant, enriched, good lives, learning to make peace with who we are and forgive ourselves, and trusting that the God who brings us to this place is not bringing us there to shame us or to embarrass us, but to liberate us. That's what I think this story is all about. So I want to remind you, I don't believe Jesus brought Peter to the place of hot burning coals to rub it in, but to rub it out, to liberate him. And I trust what Jesus did for Peter, he'd do for me and you. He's done it for me. And so, if you keep running into the same emotional walls, time after time after time, you might want to think of another way to respond and ask for grace and ask for help to get through so that those same landmines won't have to continue going off in the future. And the hope is, if we can navigate through this, make peace with ourselves, then we really will become useful for our sisters, our brothers, and our siblings and be agents of grace in a world that's filled with fear of not enough. And that, like Peter, we might be able to help care for Jesus' lambs and sheep and each other, coming from a place of humility, a place of acceptance, and a place of peace. So that's my hope for us. That's what I think, in part, this story is about. And I'm not trying to stand here and tell you that's what this story means. It's just a reading, an understanding of this story that I hope is efficacious for our souls. Mm -hmm.